Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Ellie and in this episode I'm joined by Laura, Emma and Priyanka to talk about radiation and how it's used in medicine as well as other areas of science. Laura, you've worked with radiation, tell us about it. (laughs) So I used to work in the nuclear industry and then ended up working at a radiation science or laboratory called the Dalton Cumbrian Facility, uh, which is run by the University of Manchester. And I was working around a lot of radiation chemists. I went to a conference with them and then ended up being a trustee of the Miller Trust for Radiation Chemistry. So it's very nice to be acknowledged in that way. I don't really think of myself as a radiation chemist, though, although I know lots of random things about radiation chemistry. Wonderful. Emma, your experience is quite different. Why don't you tell us what you've been up to? Well, I'm a biochemistry student, so I would say that my focus is less of physics and more of the stuff that happens in a body. My interest is cancer treatment and basically radiation and its use in therapy is a big part of that. Amazing. I'm looking forward to learning more about that later. And Priyanka, you're also a biochemistry student, but you've got a slightly different focus. Tell us about that. Yes, of course. So uh, yes, I am a biochemistry student, so very similar modules here. I've done a dissertation in my second year on using nanoparticles in radiotherapy and how we can use nanoparticles with proton therapy to kind of deliver the most efficient form of radiotherapy possible. Amazing. Right. So I am already confused because I know nothing about radiation. And to me, radiation is scary. So I think we maybe we need some definitions to start off. So Laura, do you want to clarify what we're talking about, please? I shall try. Yeah. Most people that have been through the UK education system, probably at some point were told something about alpha, beta and gamma radiation. It's basically different forms of things that cause an ionisation, so effectively causing electrons to be knocked off an atom. And this can do things like break chemical bonds or lead to the production of different types of chemicals, depending on what's happening with it. Um, And those different types of radiation act in very slightly different ways. So an alpha particle is obviously something that's a little bit heavy. It's got some mass, doesn't penetrate very far. Beta radiation is essentially electrons. They can do slightly different things to alpha particles. And gamma and x-rays, basically like light, but with higher energy, so they can be quite penetrating. They all lead to these ionization events. I see. So what's the difference between someone having radiation treatment in medicine and the radiation produced by, you know, like um, Chernobyl or like nuclear radiation or atomic weapon radiation? Oh, as far as a physicist is concerned, they'd probably say not a damn thing. (laughs) But in medicine, it's more controlled, it's more confined, um, it's administered very carefully, the dose is carefully thought out, the area of the body that it's applied to is thought out as well. Um, And I guess one of the main differences, certainly with an atomic weapon, is you get something called fallout. So you get radioactive particles in the air that then can seep into the ground and be absorbed by biological structures like trees and people. And obviously you don't get that in medicine, again, because it's quite controlled and it's not something that's released into the environment. In the nuclear industry, it's also really well controlled as well. And in the radiation labs that I've worked in, again, it's incredibly well controlled. So although it's the same physical phenomenon, it's managed differently to make it safer than just letting radiation go out there in the wild and do its thing. Probably also worth pointing out that there are lots of radioactive isotopes in the world naturally anyway, and in your own body and in the food you eat. 
the difference is the concentration that it's there in. So when it's more concentrated, there's more radiation that can do more ionisations. So I've learned that we are now all slightly radioactive. Incredible. Yeah. And when someone says something is radioactive, what they mean is it's above a certain level where it can be detected above what's naturally out there. Wow. Okay, I'm interested. So I'm even more interested in then how this radiation therapy works. So Emma and Priyanka, why don't you explain the medical terms and how it works within the human body? So basically, radiation therapy, the way it works is that we have a dose of laser or like radiation that we kind of administer onto the patients. Before doing that, we kind of map out the structure of the tumor or like the area at which we want to target this radiation. According to that, we decide on the dose, um, on the strength of the of the radiation, as well as the kind of radiation we use. Because as we know that there are multiple kinds that we can use based on their potency, based on um, how strong we want them to be, and based on the depth of the tumor itself. After we administer that dose, we have to take into account that there are cells that are affected by the radiation upon entry and the exit, kind of surrounding the tumor itself. So what we aim to do is balance out how many cells are damaged in the process. What we're trying to do is ensure that the least number of cells are damaged on the entry and exit pathways, because of which we have all these different sorts of like radiation available. Amazing. So if I or someone you had cancer, one of the th- like treatments available would be using this like really targeted sort of laser approach of radiation to kill the cancer, to kill those cancer cells effectively. And you're trying to minimize the other cells that get damaged within that process? Exactly. So the way radiation kind of works is that it targets actively dividing cells. So cells that are kind of resting they don't really get affected as much, which is why it's such an attractive target for cancer cells, because as we know, tumor cells, they just continuously divide. There is no stopping them. That's why it's kind of like a magnet attracting all the radiation to it. But as we know that some form of radiation isn't as precise as we would like, which is why we have so many side effects, which is why some of the side effects can even show up like weeks or something after a dose or like a radiotherapy uh, routine that we have, sorry, a course. So if I had radiotherapy, there's a chance that I could end up with some extra abilities. I'm thinking Spider-Man gets bitten by a radioactive spider. (laughs) So not only will I hopefully be cured from the cancer, I'll also, you know, get some extra benefits. I wish that's how it worked. (laughs) Because then we'd have like a whole bunch of superhumans here, but I don't think that's how it is. At this point, it's not gotten to that level yet, but... I'm sure that there is someone out there, some Professor Doofenshmirtz, who's like trying to create that in their labs. (laughs) I have heard of studies where they use radiation to create some sort of like seeds for rice that are resistant to drought, for example. But I've never quite understood how they, they must modify the genetics in some way using the radiation. I've never understood how. And a seed is obviously a lot less complicated than the human body. So it'd be interesting to understand if you could have that same effect on a much larger organism. I doubt it. I think humans are too complicated. And the human body's got some really good repair mechanisms for that sort of thing. Yeah, I maybe would um, say how radiation works in the actual cell when, when the radiation hits a group of cells. Radiation ionizes water, which creates radicals, which are molecules which are highly reactive and these create double-stranded nicks in our DNA. Every single cell has a repair machinery inside to make sure that these breaks are repaired. But since these radicals are so reactive, 
sometimes the cell doesn't know how to repair the, the cut. So what we get is basically a large portion of the DNA is then deleted. And if like a detrimental part of DNA is deleted, the cell is unable to function and basically dies. If we were to compare radiation therapy to, for example, chemotherapy, I wouldn't say either is better than the other because the main aim of the doctor is really to assess the cancer. For example, if we have a cancer like melanoma, which is skin cancer, and it's spread all over the body, we can't just radiate the entire body because that would kill the person because the radiation will be all over their body, damaging not only cancer cells, but also healthy cells. So doctors need to focus whether the cancer is local, such as like a tumor in the lymph nodes, for example, or systematic, I would say all over the, or, or, or malignant. So you're saying that the radiation works best in this form, if it's sort of in one very specific area, so you can focus it all to target that specific tumor. Yeah, I would say it, it works the best because it minimizes the, the damage to, to healthy cells. Chemotherapy as well, as well as radiotherapy, it affects um, rapidly dividing cells, which are also healthy cells such as our hair. And that's why we sometimes see cancer patients losing their hair because it's affecting everything, not only or not only cancer cells. Oh, this is super, super interesting. And some cells may actually be resistant to radiation if, if the cancer is loca located very deep in the body, such as renal cells in the kidney. If the doctors choose a high dose, it may not have the same effect because it's so deep and it's just does more damage than good, basically. In that instance, where you're talking about using a high dose, yeah. x-rays, I think, is quite a common radiation therapy. But x-rays kind of lose energy as they proceed through a body or matter or whatever it is. They'd be ionizing the healthy material yeah. or the healthy cells before they get to the tumor. And then they'd be less effective when they get to the tumor because they have less energy. Yeah. And I would say the, the big problem with radiation therapy currently is it's very hard to... Um, let doctors learn all of this stuff about radiation therapy because they need to estimate the proper dose that needs to be delivered. They need to locate the tumor, which at this point is very invasive because sometimes they need to do, do it surgically or like the person has to do a CT scan to locate the tumor and it's quite invasive. But the current um, focus in, in radiotherapy is using AI to help doctors with the accuracy of the treatment Basically, what they're trying to do is using deep learning of AI, try to com compile as much data as possible and help estimate the appropriate dose for the patient, but also estimate what type of outcome the treatment would have, if it's even required or if, if it will even be effective. So they're using artificial intelligence to work out how much radiation to give someone. This is insane. Yeah. I don't understand artificial intelligence at the best of times, but I love that there's this application of it that can help people that are suffering from these like diseases. It's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's amazing as well because it's it's so quick and I feel like it can improve the the outcome of so many patients with just a few minutes. Whereas now the surgeon has to be highly trained with I don't know how many years of practice to sort of figure out where how to how to treat the the disease and maybe in a few years it'll just take like a 10 minute exam to estimate what type of treatment the patient will need 
So how far away are we from like AI based treatment? Is this something you could get tomorrow or are we five years, 10 years? What, what do you reckon we're looking at? The latest paper I read on using AI in radiotherapy was only in 2020. It was described, described as sort of an emerging therapy target, but I would say maybe 10 years. I mean, definitely within all of our lifetimes then, really. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Ah, so is the idea that the artificial intelligence takes all of the information that's been published in medical journals about different cancer therapies, different types of cancer, different patient outcomes, different um, different ways of treating the cancer, which I guess we should talk about in a bit more detail, and figures out how to match all those things together to give the best treatment for that particular type of cancer in that particular person. Yeah, exactly. Wow. This is so clever. You could think like all the data that we could feed it, it could learn so much more. <laughs> and like you could apply it to this, but then in theory, you could apply it to lots of other diseases as well. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to find a, a huge data set to feed it and see what I can make it do <laughs> with my very limited knowledge of AI. Feed the AI. It's what we need to do. <laughs> we just had one at work where they uh, fed an AI and like deep learning and it they taught a robot to peel a banana. They just like did it over and over and over again. And then the, the robot learned the like level of touch required to peel the banana, which I just think is so cool but then you think oh they've taught it to peel a banana with the soft touch but they wanted to teach it to do like medical procedures to like sew people up and incredible and that banana is the first step interesting link between bananas and radiation is the banana equivalent dose because bananas contain potassium and there's a radioactive isotope of potassium so all bananas have some potassium in and it's quite a common way of um, making radiation more understandable so radiation doses are usually talked about in sieverts you can equate that into like the average dose from a banana so how many bananas for that equivalent dose so there's another benefit to eating bananas as well as your five a day it's also like your radiation dose a day um i wouldn't quite put it like that it'd still be low background but that sort of information like how much radiation are you um in contact with on a daily basis is taken into account when you're working out what happens in the human body when you're exposed to more radiation um it goes back to when we were talking about as well uh repair mechanisms so the human body is exposed to radiation and uh, Emma mentioned radicals all the time. Radicals are produced in the human body during normal metabolic processes, from what I've been told from chemists. And the body's got some very good ways of dealing with that. So the, the natural radiation from your banana, body knows what to do with it. I find this very mind-blowing. I think popular science has like really altered my perception of radiation to be like, oh, radiation is bad. You know, you're going to end up in hospital because like you know they got the Chernobyl documentaries and all that that sort of thing but actually like if bananas are mildly radioactive and containing these radicals and these isotopes and I eat bananas every week and I'm fine <laughs> touch word then like this is it's crazy to me that it can be both bad and good like simultaneously yeah like you can use use it to cause like cell death of a tumor and also keep the person like essentially healthier than they were before and also it's just it's just in the air it's like the um invasive species from last week like they're all around you and you might not know and this radiation is all around <laughs> us and you, you like I didn't necessarily know so I find this really really interesting 
are there any more like applications of like radiation and ionizing radiation in the in well not necessarily day to day but that you guys know of i can think of a few but it just occurred to me that priyanka mentioned nanoparticles and we haven't really explained how they work in radiation therapy That's a big one. That's a big, big one. So it's really, really, it's kind of very new research right now. But when we talk about radiation therapy, we talk about finding the right balance about like the right dosage and the right strengths and everything, right? The way nanoparticles work is that they sensitize specific cells. They, they kind of make tumor cells or whatever cells we kind of put them in a lot more sensitive to the radiation, which just means that if a specific group of cells are more sensitive, we can use a lower dosage of the radiation themselves. So that kind of avoids any, a lot of the damage that can occur in the healthy cells because it's not strong enough to actually cause significant damage or like DNA damage and everything in healthy cells. It's just enough to to target the tumor cells and kind of cause them to go through all these changes and kind of apoptosis and everything. Moreover, we can actually add the chemotherapeutic drugs that we use onto the nanoparticles. We can kind of coat them on the surface, which is basically like chemotherapy plus, you know, increasing the sensitivity of the cell. And the cherry on top is the radiation. It's like a trifecta of like killing the the evil villain in our body and just kind of targeting the cancer cells directly. I mean, wow. <laughs> That's all I can say. So it's like, it's like a triple threat. You've triple yeah. threatened all of cancer treatment. A proper knockout at this point like the tumor cells have no chance against it you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the best part is my research kind of focused a lot on using proton therapy and nanoparticles the way proton therapy is a bit more accurate than regular radiotherapy is that it uses protons which deposit their energy at the end of their at the end of their path during the entry dose, they don't deposit any energy or it's very insignificant. So none of the healthy cells kind of get any of that ionizing radiation that Laura was talking about. Only at the end, when they reach uh, that limits, do they deposit most of their energy about, let's say about, I'm not really sure about the exact percentage, but I would assume about 70 to 80%. And on the exit dose, there is nothing. It's like 0%. There's nothing at all. So the damage that we were concerned about on the entry and exit paths are reduced to the point of just being negligent. That combined with nanoparticles, chemotherapy, all of that stuff just kind of together, it's it kind of feels a bit like utopia, like it just seems too perfect to be true, which is why there are a lot of t- clinical trials and everything happening right now, because nanoparticles have been used in radio in conventional radiotherapy, but not in proton therapy. There's a whole world out there of like possibilities, opportunities and everything. So it's a very, very exciting field right now. Conventional stuff that would be with gamma rays that are delivered from a source that's external to your body. Is that right? Yes, I believe gamma rays. I think the most common form of radiation is photons. They kind of deposit their energy throughout the pathway. So that's why it's not as effective in tumor cells. You can really focus proton beams. Back to particle (laughs) accelerators again. That's where the protons are, are made. There are X-ray generators as well, um, or a different type of source. You can have a, just a, a naturally occurring isotope that will give off gamma rays or X-rays. Um, you can also get um, radiation delivered internally as well, can't you? So you, you have like little beads that sort of encapsulate a radioactive isotope, and they can be delivered to a site, which sounds similar to the nanoparticles stuff, but it's not 
sensitizing the cell to radiation. It contains the radiation in it. Yeah, a radiation can be used also in, in internally. And I would say that we we could use nanoparticles as small delivery routes to deliver radiation successfully. With all of these, how are you getting it in the first place? Ah. Say I, again, am the hypothetical example that I'm unwell and I need this radiation therapy, even these AIs, these new ones, like where is it coming from? Is it like in a Homer Simpson style box with and he's taking it out with like gloves or like, <laughs> is it in a special machine? Like where, how does it, how does it exist in the hospital in a way that is like safe for them it to be delivered to me? Um, I would say the one way we could... Um we could design the nanoparticle is to alter the, the characteristics of the actual molecule it, the, the drug is bound to. So for example, if, if the tumor is in the brain, we can make the molecule really hydrophobic so it gets delivered there rather than the bloodstream, which has a lot of water. Oh, brains don't have water. <laughs> oh, that's what I got out of that. Well, for a drug to go into the brain, it has to cross on the blood-brain barrier right. and it has to be hydrophobic. Oh, okay. And this is really hard if, for example, the drugs are delivered via, via blood, so intravenously, for example. Right. So brains do have water in them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and just just um, increase their bioavailability or basically just influence how much drug is delivered to the site that we we want because most drugs are broken down as they enter if we engineer the delivery molecules in such a way that they would resist this breakdown that's how we ensure that it it goes where it needs where it needs to be basically i just love that we can engineer this on like a teeny tiny level i had no idea that this was even possible and even when priyanka was saying about the the three-step process that you can make the cancer more susceptible before you even do anything with the radiation this is i mean this is a whole world that i had no idea about so this is absolutely fascinating um yeah you're talking about these teeny tiny molecules but you also asked um how is it delivered and the particle accelerators that i worked with that would deliver the proton beams were kind of large like wouldn't really fit in my house easily say <laughs> so you've got these tiny tiny particles and this massive machine and they both have to come together to do something to your body that is beneficial um, and x-rays can be generated in a similar way from a machine whereas if you have a nanoparticle that's radioactive i guess that is uh, an isotope that is generated probably in a research reactor maybe um, but generated in a really controlled way and then carefully stored and handled and shipped because yeah when you say particle accelerators all i think of is cern and it being like five or six kilometers long or whatever it is oh no not quite that big um but CERN, CERN <laughs> serves a different purpose they're looking for strange particles not delivering things we know a lot about in a very controlled way this shows my absolute zero knowledge of this topic because <laughs> like particle accelerators radiation all of these things have so many more uses than i even could fathom existed which i think is is awesome Laura, did you want to tell us more about different opportunities to use these processes? Yes. So we've talked about x-rays and obviously they're used to take pictures of the human body to see what's inside it. So that's one different application of x-rays, but they can also be used to look at materials as well. So if you think back to high school physics, 
do you remember doing the um, double slit diffraction experiment with light where you shine some light through slits and you get a diffraction pattern appearing on a wall on the other side? I did it through a prism, but that is going back a long old time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you can do something similar with x-rays because they're a different wavelength. They diffract through the space between atoms. So then you get a diffraction pattern that tells you something about that material or that substance um, and it's actually how the structure of dna was found so ah. by diffracting x-rays through crystalline dna i mean i live in cambridge so this i actually do know about <laughs> <laughs> the space between atoms is useful i love this teeny tiny stuff like normally i do big things or whole organisms at the very least even whole ecosystems but to me to look at it stuff on a molecular level a nanoparticle level is so fascinating. Do we know any like further things that we could do with it? Because I feel like this is a whole world I haven't explored. Like I've heard that you can radiate animals like mosquitoes to make them sterile. Like I have no idea how that works, but I think it's a good idea. I think it's an interesting idea. Does anyone else know any more about it? I tried reading one paper about this that said they basically gave them radiation doses to different amounts and then put them in with some females to look at how they reproduced or whether they reproduced at all. They just kind of figured out what dose to give the mosquitoes to sterilise them based on that. But exactly how it works, how it sterilises them without doing more to them, I'm not sure. It did also apparently make them less competitive with non-radiation sterilised mosquitoes. So there would be mosquitoes that were more desirable to the females. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I didn't get much out of it beyond that. They just kind of found those two observations and didn't go down to what happens to their DNA, which I was a bit disappointed by because I really like looking or hearing about atoms as well. The, the reason they're doing this is so that there are fewer mosquitoes in the world to spread diseases like malaria. So they don't need to be so interested in what happens to the atoms. They just need to see the end result. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's just crazy to me that, like, we're talking about radiating a tumour in a human body, which to me is at least, you know, maybe golf ball sized or smaller, but still sizable. But then you can radiate a mosquito, which is tiny in the first place, even tinier, if that makes sense, to then make it sterile. Like, these doses are ridiculously small, or they must be. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, which is just super impressive i mean they're not like firing proton beams from a particle accelerator at individual mosquitoes <laughs> this is what i'm imagining <laughs> that would be interesting though i think they put them in a box and put them inside an irradiator that uses gamma rays for example because gamma rays will pretty much fill that chamber and go all the way through the mosquito and then be absorbed by the surroundings of that chamber so the gamma rays don't escape. That's what I think they do. So yeah, they just literally apply different doses of gamma radiation to the mosquitoes to look at the effects. That's also how food can be preserved. Uh, so similar to the mosquitoes, they can apply this um, measured dose of radiation and it will kill the bacteria on the outside, but won't destroy the sugars or whatever else is inside the food, like a strawberry, for example. So the strawberry stays fresh and tasty and is perfectly safe to eat. Gamma rays don't make things radioactive. They just break molecular bonds. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We're firing radiation at strawberries, which is killing bacteria, but not damaging the strawberry so that I can still eat it. Yep. 
And I guess, again, that assuming the strawberry isn't alive once it's been picked, so it's still cells stop dividing, but the bacteria on the surface are dividing, going off what Emma and Priyanka were just saying, that bacteria will eventually die because it's going through the process of cell division. I'm, I'm guessing here. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I literally just made that up. <laughs> Say it with I assume that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just as Laura said, the uh, bacteria are dividing. And if we fire radiation on them, DNA breaks and then they're unable to survive. So killing them ethically as well, maybe. <laughs> if you can apply ethics to, to killing bacteria. Bacteria rights. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it then a question of are we valuing the life of a bacteria more than a human who could have potentially been like infected of some sort of a disease? Are you saying you want the bacteria to survive so they can go and colonize people's colons? <laughs> or like, you know, infect people with like sal- salmonella, even though salmonella doesn't really happen from strawberries, but it's a it's food for thought. <laughs> It certainly is. And <laughs> yeah. you're saying that this radiation won't affect the taste of the strawberries. So it's killed the bacteria, but it's not affected in any way the flavour of the strawberry. That is what I have read. I've not, to my knowledge, I've not eaten a strawberry that has been irradiated, but I may have, and I just don't know. And I, I wouldn't know the difference. But it's, it's a better way of preserving food in that instance than pasteurising something, for example, or heating something to kill the bacteria, because that would affect the strawberry. A similar way that it works is, for example, in the doctor's office when they put their surgical equipment under UV rays. UV also damages DNA, I would say, in sort of a similar manner, that it kills the bacteria on top and leaves the leaves the the equipment sterile and they're like those autoclave machines right like is that what they're called the things they use in the barbers as well like to sterilize their tools so it's just like a high dose radiation hit like within a box essentially and then that kills the bacteria and then then it's sterile for the next person that needs surgery or a haircut (laughs) or is this craving a strawberry (laughs) i know i'm gonna have to go to the shop after this but then so is this common practice is irradiating food like in the mainstream, if I go to co-op, can I buy this sort of thing? I'm not too sure what happens in the UK or where it happens, but you can definitely read examples of it. I've read, I've seen an awful lot of research papers from irradiation of condiments like ketchup and mustard. <laughs> I mean, I do love mayonnaise, so maybe I can get on board with it. Yeah, I don't think they came from UK researchers, but you know, if you've got some condiments and you've got a radiation source and some time on your hands <laughs> and you want to write a paper... And get it peer reviewed. Why not? What else can we do with the radiation? Because I think also being the pop culture influenced person that I am, like, isn't the Hulk powered by radiation or his exposure to it like causes him to become Hulk-like? So can we create can we create super monsters and baddies? Not that I'm suggesting we should. The Hulk is an Avenger after all. <laughs> like, is this when you get these like crazy side effects? like obviously the Hulk is not real but you hear these things like the fish living in Chernobyl waters and things like that like grow two eyes like that's the the stereotype yeah well I personally hate saying that something is impossible in biochemistry and I was actually thinking about like under what circumstances could we create like a radioactive monster like Godzilla or something and I would say if we wanted to do it if we were like an evil scientist We'll have to probably make like a, a few p- petri dishes with lizard embryos, irradiate them with radiation. And we would have to hope, as, well, it's highly improbable, and we will have to hope that the repair mechanisms would insert a certain bit of DNA. Maybe we could engineer them to do it. 
that would make the lizard grow, I don't know, to be as big as Empire State Building. <laughs> fire. And hope that the embryo grows into a full r- r- lizard. And maybe that's why it's very improbable, but... But not impossible. For now, for now. <laughs> it's the repair mechanism that's responsible for doing that. It's not necessarily the radiation. It's what the body then does next to respond mm. to it. Ah. So this... this- in potentially this idea could be unlocked like we could all have the potential to be superhuman if we got exposed to the right level and then repaired and then mutated and then also survived potentially isn't that the basis of the x-men though that it was like the next evolution in humans that you develop all these wild different features kind of going back to our biomimicry episode i was just thinking my quest my quest for built-in box <laughs> openers inside my hand is one step closer this is amazing. So you just need to find the right radiation dose that affects the right bit of DNA that is affected by some sort of biological repair mechanism in the right way. Done. Done. You can have your tail and your little box got the claw. Emma and Pranka, you've got 10 years to sort this out for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to work on it right now. Thanks very much. I better get on it. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good place to leave it. We've deviated pretty far from the original topic. So I think this time we draw the conversation to a close. We've covered ionizing radiation, cancer therapy, nanoparticles, and pretty much everything in between. So if you'd like to carry on this conversation, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you very much for listening. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.